Hello, everybody. You guys out there? I love, I love being a part of this church community. It's absolutely amazing. Kula, you guys, Maria, I know that takes great courage for you to get up and share. Um, thank you for the work you're doing, you guys. Thank you for, we just get you for one Sunday in a year to come and, you know, just whet our appetites, but it's just beautiful. One Hope is getting involved. You guys are awesome. Um, I love being a part of this church for a couple of reasons, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but one of the ones last week at launch week, I was just so reminded why I love being part of a community. Like, this wasn't it an amazing day? It was just incredible, the balloons coming down, just the celebration, the sense of just the favor of God on us, the, the spit bry afterwards. It was just really amazing, and I just wanted to pause for a moment and do two things. I wanted to thank the volunteers, uh, Sarah and the volunteers. There was about 40 of you that were here on Saturday most of the day um, until late that evening, and then 5 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, those spit brides were already on, already started, so that's just a huge thank you. And then I want to really uh, pause and just take notice of the fact that it's not often that we see a church going separate from another church in peace and in joy and with blessing. And so I want to just thank God. I want to thank God that Steph can come and stand here and we can give gifts to one another and we can praise God and celebrate together and there's no blood on the floor. And if you haven't been around church for 20 years, I want to tell you that's a rare thing. And so I just wanted to, to make note of that and just thank God for the way that he's led us through the process. Steph and Kaz have been incredibly open-handed in their leadership in releasing us. And then I love being part of this church for another reason, and it's what we were talking about this morning with Kula and, and calling, um, calling Academy and all the other organizations we're involved with. Won't you guys, the media guys, won't you throw up that photo uh, yesterday as we got together? Look at that. Just look at that. Over 70 people are there cleaning, organizing classrooms, doing all sorts of stuff at Calling Academy. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, guys like people that's come into my mind, uh, Francis and, and Julia. These are, these are first years, right? I don't know if you guys are here. Some, there, I see Frankie there. I don't know where Julia is. There we go. You guys are first years. You've just joined us, but there they are, volunteering last weekend at the launch and there yesterday. Guys like uh, I see you here this morning, Sergio and, and Cora. Second week, third week that you're with us volunteering. And I want to, at the same time, I want to throw out a, a challenge to us, those of us who've been around for a long time. If you're not getting involved, you're missing out. You really are. These are beautiful things in the heart of God. We're going to talk about them a little bit just now as we look in the book of Jeremiah, even though we're doing Ezra and Nehemiah. You're going to see the links just now. But these are beautiful things, powerful things in the heart of God. And if you're not getting involved, you're missing out. Don't grow complacent. Don't grow complacent, guys. Our country needs us to be engaging with these things. And I want to say that we, this church is not normal. It's not normal in the best possible sense of the word. Get involved. Get stuck in. All right. One more note on that around, uh, around justice and biblical justice is that this week in our life groups, we start a Foundations for Justice course. It's a three-week long course looking at what does the Bible say about biblical justice. So if you're in a life group, look forward to that. That's what you're going to be doing. And then along with that is a 15-day devotional. Can I encourage you to get that and get stuck in, in that? 
Take it just for 15 days, every morning or every afternoon, whenever you do your devotions. Get that and go through it with us. Let's do it as a community. If you aren't part of a life group, the one big question is why. If you have a legitimate reason, there are copies for you as well, even if you don't have a legitimate reason, all right? There's devotional copies for you. At the back, at the end, there'll be devotional copies. Grab one of them and get stuck in with us over the 15 days. All right, are you with me? Kind of, not really. Great. Thank you, Lord, that you are with me this morning. <laughs> so this morning we're going to start a new series, and it's actually on the book of Ezra Nehemiah. Now, that's strange for our ears, but if you go back and look in the, history, in the, in the Hebrew texts, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are not separated. They're actually one book until the 13th century when it was translated into Latin, that was when the separation came. So it's actually one author. In fact, it's the same author that Sean was reading from in Chronicles as well. All three of the books, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, are by one author. You can see the, the, the um, similarities all throughout the books, and they're happening concurrently. So Ezra and Nehemiah are happening at exactly the same time. So you'll see at the end of Nehemiah, you'll see Ezra begins to play a part again, because it's all been happening in the, in the same timeline. Now, I'm just anticipating in the room, just because I've had some conversations with people and been around church for some time, I'm anticipating that some of us might be wondering why in the world would we do an Old Testament book? Why are we going to spend so much time? Couldn't we, couldn't we, shouldn't we, shouldn't we rather be doing one of the Gospels or one of the epistles, Paul? Shouldn't we be good? Something that's, inverted commas, actually relevant to our Lives and and the problem is that in our Western church culture we reduce the Old Testament to a kids' church collection of stories. We we make them devoid of of power. They have maybe a few life lef- lessons, you know, like you know, let's be courageous like David when he when he faced Goliath, and that's what we take out of the Old Testament. Am I right? And and we've largely removed from the Old Testament the ability to deeply and, and powerfully let God transform our lives. From the Old Testament, we've, we've deeply, we've, we've removed this idea that the whole of the Old Testament is shouting out the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into it anymore. So for today, I'm going to ask you to just push pause on those questions and to stay with me as we go through this book. But I'm promising you that next week, God willing, I'm still here, I will stand up and I will begin with an apologetic, with two big, thoroughly, hopefully examined points on why it's so important that we get stuck into the Old Testament. But I don't have time to do that today, otherwise I'd keep you here till 12. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Ezra chapter 1. I need you in your Bibles all morning with me. You guys are going to have to be up it. Bring your Bibles, get your device, turn your Bible on, whatever you've got. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 4. And we're going to read together. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you don't own a Bible, why don't you come and talk to us? We'd love to give you one as a gift. If you don't have one with you, you can also follow with me on the screen. Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So this is the edict that this pagan king puts together. And he says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, just want you to note there the capitalization of the word Lord. Do you know what that means? Yahweh. Capital L-O-R-D means the, the Yahweh. 
the Hebrew God, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, if nobody needs to explain that to you, you are not a garden variety Christian. You're not a normal, do you know what that means? You're not, you're not an ordinary Christian. Because for most of us reading that, we like, okay, so we read it and we, and we say, okay, in the first year of Cyrus, well, who's Cyrus? Who is he? Uh, okay, well, I don't know, let's carry on. He's the king of Persia. Okay, I think I've heard of Persia, right? You know, Persia, the Medes, the per- Persians, Persian carpets. I've got some link, you know, so I'm reading. So if you're reading this for the first time on your own, and then you think, well, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, who's he again? Isn't he like a, a prophet? Don't I have a book? I think I've got a book when I was learning it, like in Sunday school, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Somewhere in there was a Jeremiah, or maybe you learned Jeremiah was a bullfrog. That's the song I learned. And so this is how we are, are, are engaged with the Word of God, with the Old Testament. And we're not sure what is this thing that Jeremiah prophesied that is now being fulfilled or, or these kind of questions. And these are, these are good. If we just read lightly, we, we're robbing ourselves. We completely are robbing ourselves. And so as this book starts, actually what the author is doing is assuming so much of the reader, of you, of me, as we read this book for the first time, it's like it's the deep end of the pool, and he's just shoving us in and saying, "Good luck." Effectively, so what we're going to do this morning, and I'm going to do this quickly. I'm not going to take a million years. We're going to go to the book of Jeremiah because until you understand what's going on in the book of Jeremiah, it's almost impossible to actually understand the context that Ezra and Nehemiah are being written in. And then next week, we're going to do a, a kind of overview of the, all the books together. And then in week four, three or four, we're going to zoom down into Nehemiah. So we'll spend the vast part of our series looking in on the book of Nehemiah. But until we get the context, it's absolutely um, unhelpful. And as we read, I want, you to, I want you to think of this. And Maria mentioned this as she was standing up here about God's faithfulness. This morning, really, this is what I've titled my sermon, The Faithfulness of God in Our Sin. Even in your sin, Sebastian. You're sitting on the front row again. It's good to see you there. Even in your sin, Paul, God is faithful. That's what I want you to hear in the background of what we're going to do. Okay, so let's get going. Jeremiah, who is he? He's an Israelite priest. But he's the, he's the priest in Jerusalem in the final decades of southern Judah. Before southern Judah is obliterated, he is one of the final priests. But more than being a priest in Jeremiah chapter 1, we see that he's also called to be a prophet. Very specifically, he's called to be a prophet. How was this book of Jeremiah put together? So get your finger in Jeremiah while I'm telling you this. It's quite interesting. Jeremiah in chapter 36 says that God told him to begin compiling all of his writings. But Jeremiah had been writing prayers, poems, warnings, essays, all sorts of different pieces of writing. So he hired a scribe called Baruch, and Baruch began to, took all of these uh, things, he compiled them, and he began to arrange them in sections. I need you to understand this so you can get your head around the book of Jeremiah. 
And then within these writings, he also took stories of Jeremiah's life and inserted them. So you get a kind of biographical feel for who Jeremiah is. Are you with me? So we, hopefully we're going to have this as, as clearly laid out as we can on the screen so that you guys can follow with me. But we're going to look at Jeremiah because it's in very distinct collections or chunks. Okay, and you are going to have to work hard with me this morning. So chapter 1 to 24 are the, is the compilation of his writings before the exile. All those chapters, chapter 1 to 24. We're going to read out of verse one, chapter 1, verse 10, where God has called Jeremiah to be a prophet. And then this is what he says. See, chapter 1, verse 10, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build up and to plant. So if you would, this is Jeremiah's job description. So what's your job description as an accountant? You could give me a a piece of paper that says, this is what I do. This is what Jeremiah's job description is, and it's twofold. On the one side, he's being told, you're going to pluck up, you're going to break down, you're going to destroy, you're going to overthrow. And the way that Jeremiah does that part of his job is that he accuses the people of Israel. He accuses them of sin. He warns them. He warns their leaders. He goes after them like fiercely, all right, in the book of Jeremiah. But then there's immediately the second kind of part of his job description. So the first part is is the judgment of God. And we see that throughout the book of Jeremiah. But then immediately in verse 1, verse 10, in his job description, he also says, but you're also going to plant and you're going to build. And there's already this, this little thread of grace, this little thread of hope right there in his, in his job description. And you're going to see that as he writes, he doesn't just write judgment, judgment upon the people. He also writes, no, but God's going to hope. God's going to bring redemption. There's going to be forgiveness. There's going to be grace. Are you with me? Or are you with Jeremiah? And this is, this is the main idea of the whole book of Jeremiah. Israel has broken covenant with God. When you hear the word covenant, your mind should go back to Moses, Abraham. These are the guys that God was making covenant with. I will, Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all nations. I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars. I will give you a land upon which your feet shall, you know, all of these. This is the covenant. Then Moses, and he takes the people, and, they, and, they, and they're rebellious, and they're in the desert for 40 years, and he's pointing forward and saying, I'm not going to be able to take you there, because you all got to die first, you lot. That's literally what happens. But there's a covenant. God's made a covenant with us. He's taking us into the promised land. And then Joshua leads them in and so on and so forth. But Israel, in the book of Jeremiah, they've broken this precious covenant of God. And he uses imagery like adultery, prostitution, promiscuity, the strongest language you can imagine for what Israel have done to their husband, God. Then how, how have they broken their covenant? Well, they've done two things. And incidentally, I think this is the, the same two things which begin to happen in the church of God whenever we're straying far away from Him. There's two things that they've done. The first thing is this. They begin to worship other gods. Idolatry. Idolatry begins to rise in the hearts of the Western church Possessions become more important, careers become more important, my family become more important, all these things. Watch out. The second thing 
Well, within the first thing, sorry, he accuses the leaders, the kings, the prophets, the priests. He says, you guys are not following the laws of God. And the way that he sees that they aren't following the laws of God is the second main idea of how they've broken the covenant. He says there's rampant social injustice. Just pause for a minute and think about that. The signs of God looking at his people and saying, you have broken my covenant, are that they are worshiping false gods and the way that they treat the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. Those are the three that he mentions in the book of Jeremiah. That's how they are breaking God's laws. He says, you are oppressing these people. And we're going to get to a whole bunch of that in the next weeks. We're going to talk about biblical justice as we look at different sections and what's going on. And then in Jeremiah 7, there's this, he's, it's called the sermon, um, this, the temple sermon. And Jeremiah stands up in the temple and he says, yeah, it looks great, doesn't it? Effectively, this is my words. It looks great, doesn't it? Here you are worshiping your God, but actually just outside these temple walls, you are sacrificing your own children to the God of Molech, the God of the Canaanites. That's what they were doing. You come into the temple and pretend like you're worshiping God, but there's tons and tons of altars out there where you're worshiping other gods. You come into the temple and act like you treat the poor with respect and you treat them properly and you have justice in your society, but actually out there all your laws are broken and you're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this. And this is his accusation in Jeremiah chapter 20, in chapter 7. And then he says this powerful thing. It's the first time he says there's an army coming from the north. And that army's name was Babylon. There's an army coming from the north bringing the judgment of God upon you if you don't turn away from these two things that are breaking the covenant of God. Are you with me so far? I know it's a lot, but stick with me. I know you guys are highly intelligent. You're all with me. Chapter 25, so that's chapter 1 to 24. Then chapter 25 is the hinge point of the book. Up until that point, it's been warning, 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 pleading, please come back to God. 25 is the God's had enough moment. It's the moment where God looks at these people, Israel, and he says, and I'm going to read from you out of Jer- for you out of Jeremiah chapter 25. This is like a huge announcement moment. In verse 3, he says, this is Jeremiah, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Here, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil ways and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Come back to the covenant. Please come. But this moment, he's saying, For 23 years you've hardened your hearts. Verse 11. In chapter 25, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. The promised land of God, a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years is the prophecy that he puts in place. And then in verse 15 and 17, there's this really fascinating and and distressing, really. The book of Jeremiah is a distressing book. He's called the weeping prophet, right? He's weeping over these people over and over again. There's There's this image of this cup of wine that's absolutely overflowing. Now, in Stellenbosch, that's a great symbol of happiness and joy. 
But in the book of Jeremiah, this overflowing wine cup is the cup of God's wrath. And he's saying, you must force the people to drink of this cup. And in some weeks to come, we're going to speak about that cup again. Thus says the Lord, chapter 25, verse 15. The God of Israel said to me, take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I made all the nations to whom the Lord had sent me drink it. A cup full of God's just and righteous anger after he's been warning and warning and pleading with people to come back to him. That's chapter 25. So we've got chapter 1 to 24. Before the exile, warning, warning, warning. Chapter 25, Jeremiah says, God says enough. God says enough. But even then in chapter 26 to 45, God begins to spell out for Israel how their destruction is, is going to happen, what it's going to look like. And even there, there's, there's pleadings of God for them to still return to him. But that, those chapters are effectively the chapters of Israel must drink. You must drink of the judgment of God. Then they detail the siege and the terrible destruction of God's holy city, Jerusalem. And mixed in in these chapters is this, the personal story of Jeremiah, who has threatened his life over and over again. And he's actually kidnapped and stolen and taken as the priest of the people to Egypt. They kidnap this prophet and they run away with him as their personal kind of priest. And then, guys, here's the... If you zoned out for the last few minutes, zone back in with me. Right in the middle of these chapters, right in the middle of, of chapter 26 to 45, where God is busy saying, this is the destruction I'm going to throw upon this land, are chapters 30 to 33. Right in the midst of this darkness, there's this compilation of the writings of Jeremiah about the hope for Israel's future. Okay, so one of the parts of homework, I'm going to give you a bit of homework, but one of the things for homework for this week, I would love you to go and read Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, 33. Go and read them. It's, it's explicit about the hope of Israel's future. And this, I'm going to tell you quickly how he does it, because this is kind of the hinge for what I want to get to today. But what Jeremiah does is that he goes back to Deuteronomy 30. Now, I'm sure you've got that memorized. But just in case you don't, Deuteronomy chapter 30 is where Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. And he, as a, he is prophetically looking forward and he's saying, there's coming a time when you are going to turn away from this covenant that we're putting in place today. I wish it wasn't going to happen, but I can see it in God that it is going to happen. And he begins to speak to them about when, God is going to, when that's going to happen and how God is going to bring them back. Listen to what he, what he says in, Jer in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And return to the Lord your God, you and all your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your hearts and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the people where the Lord your God has scattered you. Do you see it? So he's speaking about an exile. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be sent far away. Then he's speaking about a return. But God's not going to leave you there forever. He's going to get you and he's going to bring you back in. Read verse 4. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And then go down to verse 5. 
And six, and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring. In other words, the heart that you had, the heart that you have right now, Israel, it's not going to sustain you. God himself has come down on Mount Sinai and given them the Ten Commandments, but it's not going to sustain you. You need something different. You need God to come and work inside and circumcise your hearts so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live forever. So Israel, you're going to be exiled. Israel, God's going to bring you back, though you scattered as far as the heavens. And in that moment, he's going to circumcise your hearts. Can you see the hope? This is where Jeremiah appeals, Deuteronomy chapter 30. But then he takes it even further. Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah unpacks this idea and he says, I will put my laws within them. I will write it on their hearts. So the picture image there is the Ten Commandments, where God has written the laws on tablets. Jeremiah comes and says, I'm going to write them on your hearts. I'm going to write these laws on your hearts. And those of you who know Ezekiel, we're going to get there in some week's time as well, but, but let your mind run through to Ezekiel, where Ezekiel says, not even that's enough. Not even that's enough. God, come and take out this heart of stone. Even, even the heart that you write, you try to write your laws on, even that's a heart of stone, and give me a heart of flesh. Put a new heart within me. Guys, and, and, and the beauty of this passage, of these passages, these four chapters, in the midst of the most terrible, terrifying destruction and darkness and warnings, is that already God is showing that the kingdom of darkness will not prevail. That the kingdom of darkness will not win in the end. Now remember, these guys are going into exile for 70 years. For 70 years, it's going to look like God has forsaken them. But it's not going to win. He starts to prophesy in, in, those, in those chapters that a Messiah is coming. One is coming who will sit upon the line of the throne of David. This is the messianic line. He, he continues to prophesy that, that people are going to come back to the land, just like Deuteronomy said. And then he says this incredible thing, that when they come back, all the nations are going to start worshiping God. Not just Israel, all the nations are going to come and look at this temple and marvel and worship God along with the Israelites. Now bank that piece of information. I'm banking lots of information. I'm taking liberty today with the size of your brains. Are you okay? You need to stand up and shake your leg. Stand up quickly. Get some blood pumping. Stand up. Clap your hands. Do some star jumps. Okay, sit back down. Okay, so quick recap, just so we know where we are. Chapter 1 to 24. Chapter 1 to 24. But let, let's go back one step, okay. Let's go back to Ezra chapter 1. What are we trying to do? There's this, there's this ambiguous statement right up the front of Ezra that the, that the words of Jeremiah are being fulfilled. So what we're trying to do is we're saying, well, what are those words? What words are being fulfilled as Ezra starts and Nehemiah starts? And so what we've seen is that chapter 1 to 24 is this warning, warning, warning. They're the warning letters. Then chapter 25, enough! I'm tired of you! And then chapter 26 through to 40, wherever it is, 44, if you guys are listening, eh? 
judgment on Israel. That's where God speaks, and then he outlines what actually happens. This is historically what happened. Babylon came, the great power of the age, and conquered Israel. But then right sandwiched in the middle of these devastating chapters is God saying, but I'm faithful, but there's hope, but you're coming back, but you're going to return and you're going to rebuild. And it's so beautiful because not just you, but all the nations are going to worship. Okay? That's a summary. God is faithful. He's not going to abandon them. Then in chapter 41 to 51 is this huge twist in the tale. It's the Hollywood twist. You know the movie Twist in the Tale? Where Babylon, God's means of justice, God's means of taking this kingdom Israel down, they and the other nations who've participated in, in this destruction, they get taken down. And there's this twist where Babylon, where God comes and says, I never endorsed your violence. I never endorsed your idolatry. I just simply used you as a providential tool in my hands to execute judgment. And then Nehemiah ends. Jeremiah, sorry, ends. Lots of ayahs. Jeremiah ends in chapter 52. Again, with this odd little story. It's a story about a king called Joahishan. Good name if you're having a kid, Mandy. Jehoishin, something like that. And this is what it says, chapter 52. And he spoke, this is the king, sorry, this is the king of Judah who's just been conquered by this Babylonian king, all the destruction that's happened, all the terrible things they've done. Now this king has been taken, he's been put in prison in Babylon, and then suddenly out of this this weird situation emerges, graciously, the king of Babylon freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with them in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. The king of Babylon, who's just destroyed them. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him. My kids wish that happened. By the king, according to his daily needs, until the day of his death, just in case you missed it, as long as he lived. And right at the end, what the author of Jeremiah is doing is so beautifully into the story, showing you, taking you back to chapter 30 to 34. That right in the midst of this deepest, darkest destruction, there's hope. There's a king. He's, kind of, he's sitting at Babylon's table. What's God doing? And there's this weird little story of hope. And what it does is as the book of Jeremiah ends, church, in our hearts there should be this anticipation. Oh God, what what are you going to do? How how are you going to fulfill this, God? Who's going to fulfill it? Who is this Messiah? This is the kind of questions that come out. When when are you going to do it? All right. Is Is that somewhat clear as a summary of the book of Jeremiah? Everyone who's got me say, I. I. There we go. Okay, now, with that in mind, turn back to Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. I'm going to do one tiny portion, and then we're going to be done. You can feel the smoke in the room. Now let's read it with that fresh understanding Of what happens in Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyprus, king of Persia. Who is Cyprus, king of Persia? Cyrus. 
Who is he? Is the question, people. Who is he? Who is Cyrus, king of Persia? He's God's answer to Babylon. Do you remember the last chapters where it says that Babylon, the twist in the tail, Babylon's going to be destroyed? Well, you know who destroyed the Babylonians? Go and read your history books. Who destroyed the Babylonians? The Medes and the Persians. Cyprus himself. He's the guy after whom the great Greek is named. (laughs) So this is in the first year. So 70 years later, King Cyrus comes riding into Babylon, the conquering king. Babylon has been destroyed. The armies of, of Babylon. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. What was the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah? Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, but one of it was that Babylon would be destroyed. Then listen to this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Brackets, pagan, heathen, king. Do you not just marvel? The Lord stirred up the hearts of this conquering, marauding, Babylonian, slaying, heathen, pagan king called Cyrus. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So this is now the edict that he writes down as law in the Persian kingdom. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, capitals, The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, 800 kilometers away, this derelict, burnt out city. Here's a king in all his glory conquering the Babylon empire and saying, the the Lord has, has put in my heart to go and build him a house in Jerusalem. It's ridiculous. It's unthinkable. And then he says to them, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem. What was the prophecy of Jeremiah? What was the prophecy of Moses all the way back back in Deuteronomy chapter 30? You're going into exile for 30 years, 70 years, but something's going to happen. You're going to return. God's going to take you from the scattered parts of the world, the scattered parts of, the, of Babylon, and he's going to bring you back. And now this pagan king is declaring the word of God. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Go back. Return. And then what are they going to do there? With the words of Jeremiah echoing in our mind, what are they going to do? They're going to rebuild the temple and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Does that make sense now? Isn't it powerful when we don't just read Scripture and just like, oh, that's cool. Don't know who he is, Cyrus, Cyprus. It's amazing. But what, this, what is this trigger for, for someone who knows this, for a reader who was reading this, an Israelite, or, or someone who knew the stories and had been following the pattern of what God was doing? What does this trigger in their hearts and minds? We have a wonderful, wonderful modern-day te- technology uh, metaphor for this, right? Do you know what a hyperlink is? Okay, You're reading an article, and in the article, there's a link. 
And that link links you to something else, which often links you to something else, to something else. That's how you waste your day, right? But that hyperlink tells you something that's vital about the article you're busy reading. So it might be a video. It might be another article. It could be a, a statistical study that was done, something like that. Now, when you get that hyperlink, when it's in your mind and you've gone and you've watched that video or you've read the other article and you come back to the original article you're reading, you're like locked and loaded. You're ready. The info's there. You're ready to go. You know what you need to know in order to read it. Now, the biblical authors often do this. They assume that you've clicked on the hyperlink. So the hyperlink here is the little phrase that Jeremiah prophesied or Jeremiah said would come to fulfillment. That's the hyperlink. You got to, he, he's assuming that he clicks on that thing, click, and in your mind you go, oh, return, exile, Babylon, Persia, all of these things, boom, 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 that we've just spoken about this morning come rushing into your mind. So when, when, that, when we read that beginning part of Ezra chapter 1, what does it trigger for the readers who are reading it? It, it triggers Jeremiah. It triggers his prophecies. And if you're living in this day and age, can you imagine being there and reading the beginning of Ezra, the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah? Wow. Wow. This, this, means, this must mean that what Jeremiah said is going to happen. It must mean that the 70 years, are, they're almost up. God's going to fulfill his promises. It must mean can, Babylon's going to fall. And then it triggers for them, don't forget Jeremiah 30 to 33, that there's going to be a return, that the exile won't last forever. It triggers Deuteronomy 30, that though God scatter them to every part, they're coming back. It triggers that the covenant that they've broken is not over, that God's going to come and give them another chance. It triggers that God's mercy has preserved his people. It triggers that when this happens, they're going to rebuild the temple. And then if you go and read for your homework those four chapters, you'll see in other parts of Scripture as well that it also triggers that the Messianic age is coming into being. That the Messiah is close. And that all nations are going to come and worship. That the line of David is coming with hope, with peace, with joy, with new creation. These, these, just these few verses in Ezra activate all of these things for the Jewish readers. All of these things are suddenly activated. And our, the encouragement from me to you this morning is as we study these books, lean in. I want to invite you, lean in. What's going to happen next? How's God going to show his faithfulness? Who's, the, who's this Messiah? When you read all the, the names in the book of Jeremiah and, and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, and you're like, who is this dude and this dude? They're they busy thinking, I wonder if he's the Messiah. This guy in the line of David, is Nehemiah the Messiah? I mean, I can, I can feel the hope rising. I can hear the, the excited conversations in the, in the square. I can hear the relief in the voices that God could be ending his judgment. That's where we're going to leave it for today. I want you to read. If you can read those four chapters, and if you've got the space, while you're doing your 15-day devotional on justice, just park your job for this week, all right? Your boss won't mind. I want you to begin reading the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as you can. 
But let me, let me just close off by asking a couple of quick questions. What does this mean for Christ followers today? What does this mean for you, Jockey, sitting there? What does this mean for you? What does it mean for, for you guys sitting out there this morning? Well, what it, what it means is that the story of, of Jeremiah and this hope, the package of hope right in, sandwiched in the middle there, give us profound comfort in who we serve. If you're a Christ follower, you should take profound comfort in the character of God. It pulls back the curtains and shows us that, that this God is merciful, that He's forgiving. It shows us that this is our God. He's not just theirs. This God is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's our God. And here's a little spoiler alert. Who do you think the nations are that came to see the temple? Well, the temple is Christ, and we are the nations. We are the nations. How many Jews in the house? Come on, be proud. Any Jews in the house? Put your hand up. Not a one. Maybe a half hand over there, Luke. I'll see you. We are the nations. We are, we are the fulfillment of this, these prophecies that Scripture in the Old Testament speaks about. So now, what does that matter to the, to the situation I'm facing? What, what changes in the circumstances that you're facing because of who God is? That's the take home for you today. And I had to work hard for application out of an out of overview of Jeremiah. But let me, let me put it a little bit more practically for you. I want you to think about the Israelite nation. I want you to think that they have sinned and that the judgment of God is righteous and just and they deserve it in that sense. And maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're going, well, I've sinned. I had a huge fight with someone this week. I didn't. I'm saying in my example, some weeks I do. How can I stand here this morning and worship? How can I lift my hands when on Wednesday night I was looking at pornography? How can I do that? And we feel the same condemnation, the same inability to come near to God because we think somehow we've got to earn our salvation, right? When we look at this, we're serving the same God, this God of mercy and justice, but this is an Old Testament lens. Then you come into the New Testament and it says we have no condemnation. You are equally as able to stand and lift your hands and worship if you viewed pornography on Wednesday night. And don't do it, it's a bad idea. But you are able to equally come and worship God as if you had a perfect week. As if you were like, you had your quiet time every morning for three hours. You can stand before God equal. When, when, the, when the scriptures declare us justified, justified, nothing you can do, Christ followers, nothing you can do makes you unjustified. What does this mean to you if you don't follow Christ this morning? If you hear and you count yourself an atheist or just a non-follower of Christ or you maybe even not sure, I want to appeal to you, see His mercy. Even in your sin, even if, it, even if it's your own doing, see His mercy. See that He is patient, but that He will also bring righteous judgment. Friends, I, I can't love you better than to warn you properly about Scripture. 
I can't love you by pretending like somehow you're going to be okay when you don't do what God's called us to do. We, we, God's forgiveness, let me articulate this carefully, God's forgiveness is open to each and every one of us and that leaves us without excuse. All right? Because God is willing to forgive you, it leaves you without excuse. So in our Western world, we think because God is kind, because God is good, therefore it must mean that he's not going to judge people. That's complete fallacy. It's completely wrong. Because God is good, because God is kind, he's given us a way out. That's his goodness. That's his kindness. He says, I'm going to forgive you. Yes, you're going to keep on doing it. I'm going to forgive you again. I'm going to pour out my grace and my mercy and my righteousness. And I'm going to call you just, justified because of Christ. Now that is a good God. That is a kind God. Don't take that idea and then say, well, he shouldn't judge anybody. That's a bad God. No, no, he's a good God. He's warning us over and over again. 23 years I've been pleading with you. Jeremiah says. And let me ask one more question this morning. What is a fitting response? How, how do we respond to this God of Jeremiah, this God of Ezra, this God of the Scriptures? Well, I think firstly it just leaves me stunned. It leaves me stunned. I, I just, I want to glorify Him. I want to worship Him. I want to, I want to adore Him. When I think about His mercy to Israel, and then I think that His mercy overflows to us. When I think that God is holding up hope, like literally like a banner, He's saying, hope, love. A banner over you is love. When it should be despair, judgment. Man, that makes me want to glorify Him. That gives me reason to sing with Ryan and the band. I think another fitting response is to be thankful. To cultivate, as, as the cheesy saying goes, an attitude of gratitude. But I think, I think even just looking around this morning, we say, God, thank you. Thank you that we are part of the nations that you've rescued. I think another huge fitting response is to be silent in reverent awe. Sometimes I worry that as a, as a Western church, guys, we think we got God out of a lucky packet. We think he's meek, mild, powerless, toothless. Sometimes we need to return and see a God of power, a God of justice, a God who speaks his truth and then delivers on it. And I just I was reading Job uh, this week, and where Job says, I spoke once, I'll speak no more. I spoke once, but now I put my hand over my mouth. And then God answers him with these terrifying words. And he says, brace yourself like a man, for I'm going to question you. And then he goes into three or four chapters, some of the most exquisite passages of Scripture in the whole of the Bible, at the end of Job, where he begins to just rally about where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Are you there when the, when the deer is giving birth? Do you know this? Do you Tell me if you know, he says to Job. It's an appropriate response. Reverence and awe. Two more fitting responses is repentance. When we look at a story like this, I don't know how we, our mind doesn't run to things like the way we engage with social justice. Man, guys, let's not kid ourselves. Serve studies is not going to cut it. It's wonderful, and I thank God for the beginning processes. But man, if that, if that, is, our, if that is our adult offering, so to speak, if that's the end result, 
man, this is just this is just the embryo. This is just the embryo. We as South African people need to come in repentance before God and say, God, break our hearts. Show us, not just on this issue, but on so many other issues, just like these people were stubborn and obstinate in their hearts and they were unrepentant. For 23 years, God was speaking and speaking and they won't listen. And the leaders are turning a blind eye. We've got to come and repent. And then lastly, we've got to live differently. Out of that repentance, by the grace and the the mercy of the Holy Spirit upon our own lives, we live differently. We practice living differently. We learn a lesson from the history of the Old Testament and we live differently. Let's pray together and then we're going to spend some time just worshiping our Father. Lord, this morning we've had to cover so much ground. We've gone from some singing to announcements to being moved and stirred in our hearts around Kula. It's about calling, educa- calling education, calling academy. And then we've looked at this incredible book of Jeremiah. Father, would you, just as we worship you, I want to ask that you would focus us. Each of us have different things we need to see this morning, different aspects of you that we are anemic in. And we need to see that, God. And so we, I just want to ask that as we begin to worship, Lord, would your spirit come and brood upon us? Come and put before our eyes the things that you want us to change. Come and show us, highlight an aspect of you that you want us to just glory in, just delight in. Show us where, you've made, where we've made you the small little lucky packet God. Come and blow our minds again with your size and your greatness, Father. God, I want to thank you for the credibility of your word for how it stands testimony again and again, where Jeremiah prophesies in 70 years, another kingdom is going to come and destroy this mighty marauding Babylonian army that at that time no one could see was going to fall. And yet again and again and again, your word proves true. And so we cling to everything else that your word says in our lives this morning and say, yes, yes, your promises are true. Come on, let's, Let's stand to our feet this morning and the guys are going to lead us in worship.